You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I dropped an amazing episode with Dom Grimao of The Last Felony, Ion Dissonance, and Cryptopsy. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Welcome to the show, everybody. It's time for another episode. And this episode is very interesting and a direct result of you listening to this podcast, to be perfectly honest. So the Reverb.com folks have been working on a guitar pedal documentary. And for some reason, they saw fit to include yours truly in this documentary. And I feel like that's uh, a direct result of my kind of obsession with these little boxes and the fact that you all tune in week after week to hear me talk to people about them. And that is just absolutely astounding to me. I've talked about it before, but thank you so much. Seriously. I get to do so many cool things simply because you tune in and download this little podcast. And yeah, it's just crazy. Anyhow, on this episode, Dan and Michael from Reverb come in to tell their stories about how they became involved with the company. And they tell the story of the company a little bit. And then they talk about the movie that they've been working on. And it's crazy. It's like a full-blown, legit movie. Some of the details might have shifted around a little bit because this was recorded a few months ago in November. So... This I was I was asked to hold on to it for a little bit, cradle it, keep it safe, you know, kind of like a Bilbo Baggins with the ring. And so some of this might be a little bit different by the time you hear it and by the time the movie actually airs. Some of the details might have shifted a little bit, but the fact remains that there is a guitar pedal documentary that's going to exist and going to be released on streaming platforms sometime in 2020 is what they're guessing right now. Don't hold them to that, but that's that's what they're shooting for. And you can bet that I'll be shouting it from the rooftops as soon as I find out about it because I am so excited to watch this. So without further ado, let's get into this episode with Dan and Michael. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Tone Mob podcast, show about guitar tone and the people behind it. I'm your host, Blake Weiland, and with me today, I have Dan Orkin and Michael Lux from Reverb.com. What's going on, fellas? Hey, buddy. Thanks for having us. Oh, of course. This was a good time today. I mean, it's hard to, like, do a normal podcast episode now. We just kind of have to, like, pretend we didn't just film a bunch of stuff with Jack DeVille and me for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh... Man, uh, you guys have kind of interesting stories to tell, so we should just kind of get right into it. So whoever wants to take the lead on this, what's your backstory? How'd you end up at Reverb doing what you're doing now? Uh, sure, yeah. So um, I've been at Reverb since the company started, which feels like several lifetimes ago at this point, but it was in the fall, winter of 2012. Um, I used to work at a different company in the MI or musical instrument industry um uh 
that was like a more kind of standard retailer. And just through um, being in the right place at the right time, I got connected with David, who was the founder of Reverb when the company was first starting up. Um, started working there, doing a variety of things. It was, you know, the startup grind when you're building a tech company and a, a you know, a music company, however you wanted to find it from the get-go. You do a lot of different jobs and uh, flash forward seven years, still there, still here, still doing things. Um, these days, I mostly do um, work with Michael here doing our content, which would be our articles, um, our videos, and a whole bunch of other less exciting um, things that kind of fall into the uh content on the on the website yeah i had been a filmmaker and a musician pretty much in tandem since i was really young probably about seven or eight um and had done both of those went to film school but also toured in bands in chicago um and that kind of led me to running my own post-production company which led to me um also knowing somebody who uh, was around at the beginning days of reverb who's still there and they needed a video director to start the channel. So about five years ago, I did exactly that. And to date, I think I produced around 2,000 pieces of content for Reverb. That is crazy. That's a lot. It's a lot. But not enough. <laughs> not enough, way. no. But, yeah, I know about that. There's never You can never make enough content these days. It's well, there's just so, so much, much tone out there. I oh, mean, well, tone, T-O-A-N. Yeah, tone. there's yeah. always more tone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I should really change the name of this podcast to reflect... What we're really talking about, which is tone, you know. <laughs> Absolutely, I, of course. Yeah. No. So, Dan, like, I guess we can get right into it, like, why you're here today, and then we can maybe go and back and talk about the reverb story a little bit more. But you're here shooting a movie, guys. Like, we just shot part of a movie in the shred shed, and that's still really weird to me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like a real movie, not yeah. a YouTube thing. Not that YouTube can't be a platform for real movies, but. Right. You know, you guys, you guys have bigger plans for this thing. So maybe start from, you know, sure. Um, wherever. <laughs> yeah. Michael, jump in here if you want to have any sort of flush this out. But, you know, we've been making videos for Reverb for a while. And a lot of them are, are, I would say, in the same kind of ballpark as a lot of other creators who we really love and admire on YouTube and in other um, channels and ecosystems. And we've been talking for a while about potentially doing something a little bit bigger, a little bit more ambitious. Um, and kind of trying to do something that's more of a love letter to the industry that supported our business over the years, specifically music gear. And I don't think I need to tell you that pedals and pedal buying and selling has been a huge part of the growth and um, culture of reverb over the years. So this this project um, is essentially us trying to make a full length documentary about the history and community and culture around um, effects pedals. And like I said, because that community has been so supportive of us, it's been a real joy talking to a lot of the people involved with that, hearing their story and um, trying to take all that information and pare it down into a story that anybody can understand is really compelling and really powerful and really special, regardless of if you're the deepest uh, gearhead with your own shed shred in the backyard or if you're just somebody who, you know, has maybe likes Jimi Hendrix or likes guitars more generally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the interesting things um, just about our experience in general uh, at Reverb is that we've gotten to know so many of these uh, folks behind the companies. And when you really think about it as, as music enthusiasts and gear enthusiasts ourselves, obviously uh, it's been fascinating to, to put these pedals, these boxes, these engineered devices that have kind of changed music 
together with the human beings behind them. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, for the most part, you know, the people behind the companies haven't, their stories haven't been told as much. And people associate effects as just these effects. But really, there's deeper stories behind um, a lot of these iconic companies and a lot of these effects that have affected players for decades. Yeah, you say they've changed music, sort of. I mean, I think they've totally changed music. You know, it's, I mean, obviously, I'm extremely biased. And that's not a pedal joke, but I guess it is now. <laughs> um, it's it's just, I, I don't know, the, the way we t- kind of talked about it uh, when you were filming me, but the, the way they just drastically changed the sound or relatively inexpensively for how drastic the change is. Um, I think they, without a doubt, just completely changed music and uh, kind of like you were talking about earlier, like how the pedals inform the music. You said Steve Albini was talking to, wait a minute, you guys were talking to Steve Albini. Let's wrap our heads around that. First of all. Sure. Um, But uh, I'm not sure where I'm going with this line of, of talking. No, I think, I think, um, it's the feedback loop, and that's yeah. part of the story here that we're trying to tell is back in the day when pedals were first being invented and coming out, and in researching this project, we've learned a lot about this. Um, I think there was more of a sense of them being tools that achieved a certain sonic end. Mm-hmm. This is not unique to pedals. It exists in every facet of music gear and music production history where something happens by mistake, somebody tries to replicate that mistake, and then there's a whole industry or whole lineage of gear that comes around to further that and extend that mistake or extend that happy accident that happened in the studio one day. Um, You know, tape flanging, maybe somebody bumped into a tape machine one day or maybe Les Paul was playing around and experimenting. And the line you draw from somebody taking that random happenstance in the studio to today's pedal market where there are thousands of different flanger pedals out there that each have their unique spin on it is a story that's so musical and so human and so... um, historically compelling to me that that's a lot of the motivation behind this film but also i mean a lot of what we do at reverb more generally i think but where i really get excited is in talking to all the people who make these flanger pedals or whatever kind of pedal is that every single version of it even though they all ostensibly do the same thing has a certain amount of personality baked into it mm-hmm. and people are buying those flanger pedals or deciding which pedal they're going to buy there's a lot of the same way that you know if you go to the record store the rock records are all rock records, but they all are different. They all have a, a style and a vibe and an aesthetic and artistic choices that go into them. And that line between these pedals being tools to create a certain sound versus them expressing something that a builder was trying to do and then that you can then in turn use to express what you want to do. It's just so much intersection of technology and art and music that um, it's it's really joyful. And it's a really joyful story that we're trying to tell here that kind of reflects all of that. What are what can you talk about some of the experiences you've had in making the movie? You already said you had like 75 hours or so of recorded footage. You've, you've had to have had some interesting uh, conversations and interesting things happen while you're filming this thing. Can you talk about some of those? Sure. I'm trying to think which comes to mind first. Um, there's been there's been so many. Um, and, and obviously, without giving too much away, because, you know. Right. Exactly. It's be in there. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, th- I think. One of the one of the great things really has been to actually spend time going to um, spend time actually at the places where some of these OG like 90s builders, Mm -hmm. the boutique guys like uh, Mike Pereira and, uh, you know, uh, Zach Vex and people like that, Mike Fuller, being able to actually go to them and and be in their space and in their world and. you know, these are people that we all looked up to uh, since probably we, you know, since we were first playing guitar. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and so to be able to, to kind of go inside of their space and, and get some of that perspective has been really, really phenomenal. They're trading a lot of stories, you know, the folks who um, were around in, the, in, those, in those early days of the boutique industry are trading stories about each other. And it's so interesting to hear stories about George Tripps when he's 16 or something like that. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So I think those have been the really like yeah. interesting things. I think something else that's been really interesting is um, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And a lot of these stories that we're hearing, what I mean by that is that, okay, in the seventies, they didn't have the internet, but there were still people making pedal companies mm-hmm. out of their basements the way that people were doing it today or were doing it in the 90s and the time and place and the technology and the and the kind of um, industry changes but there's this common thread between all i mean i'm sure you've experienced a lot of this yourself in the interviews you've done for the podcast where it's like a lot of people are coming at it from a place of passion and a, and a hobby and then the, the sort of slow transformation from i'm going to fix this pedal for my friend i'm going to build this pedal for my friend i'm going to build 10 of these for the shop down the street to being a company with 30 employees manufacturing thousands of pedals a year um, that, you know, there's different variations on that theme, but in every single case, people get into this business from a place of, of real passion and joy. And it's just been really interesting to hear all the different kind of permutations of that storyline told from across decades and across countries and across all kinds of other barriers. Um, that's, it's not a specific story, but it's a, it's a theme that's been really exciting to, to learn about. Yeah, that's that is interesting. And I mean, you know, I, I, I've obviously gotten close with Brian Wampler because we do the Chasing Tone podcast together. <clears throat> Excuse me. But uh, it's he was the first guy in the business that I got really close to because of that. Um, for whatever reason, he came on. I mean, when he came on my show, uh, we just hit the right vibe. I don't know why. Like we just like we hit it off. And some guys, you know, literally everyone that's been on my show has been awesome. But some people, you know, you just connect with a little bit better for no real reason whatsoever. So when I he asked me to do the podcast with him because he was considering shutting it down, I was like, well, we'll just try a couple, you know, and see what happens. And here I think I've done as many Chasing Tone episodes or more at this point than I have of my own show. And it's amazing to me that people still listen after all this time. But <clears throat> where I was going with that is like hearing Brian tell some stories from, you know, because he was obviously in it way before I was. It's like it's just funny to hear like him talk about like back in the day, the Wampler V. Keeley uh, things and the forums and stuff. And then now these two are just hanging out at NAM. Like, what were we even doing? <laughs> right. <laughs> like It's right. really fascinating. But yeah, I think uh, that's the thing that's come up a lot is like we were talking about this a little bit earlier, but like. How, you know, there are exceptions, but a lot of people, the, com- the way people approach competition in this industry is very novel to me. It's very like um, high tide raises all ships. Everybody, it seems like everybody really wants their competitors to succeed in a lot of ways. So if you think back, to, I mean, maybe it was different when Wampler in the early days, but, um, you know, I think everybody here is sort of, they're all friends. They all have a lot of mm-hmm. common ground. They all, you know, hang out at NAM or wherever else. And, um it's hard to think of a lot of other industries where um, there's like that level of kind of co-support that exists. Something that an analogy that a lot of people we've interviewed have have drawn is um, is like the punk rock scene, mm-hmm. where it's like, okay, yeah, I'm selling a seven inch vinyl, and like maybe my the band across down the street is also selling a seven inch vinyl, but we're still playing shows together and we're still supporting each other, and it's a scene, and like that sort of sense of like music scene and community. Um, it it filters into this industry in a way that's like very, uh, very palpable. 
You also see that a lot in collaborations, which is something that really didn't exist too much, um, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And now you see so many builders teaming up to do really interesting things. And Joel Corte from Chase Bliss, um, you know, he was he was he was a little weary when he did that first Mm -hmm. collaboration afterwards. He 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 was like, I just want to do more and more and more of these. It was a you know, he was a changed man. So there's <laughs> things like that that you see when talking to, you know, Felipe from Carolina or any of these folks who like to um, you know, get feedback or team up with other builders. It's really cool. Yeah, I mean, I've gotten lucky enough. I've done I don't even remember five or six different collabs through the podcast with with some companies. And I'm like, this is kind of unique. You don't see this kind of thing very often. It's right. you know. I'm like, you know, it's just kind of like I have an idea, but I don't build stuff. You know, I've always been like this guy. I'm like, I know I could build like a simple fuzz pedal or, you know, a tube screamer or something. I have the abilities to do that, but I'm more interested in letting the guys do it that really know what they're doing because I want to play them. I want to I want I I know just enough about electronics to be dangerous. And so it's just like, let the pros go. But like I get all I have all weird ideas all the time that might stem from any number of places, but like some of these guys are like, yeah, let's run with it. I'm like, really? Oh, oh, okay. All right. It's, it's a lot for me to absorb sometimes because I'm just like, I was, a, I'm just a mechanic here. Right. Like I never intended to like, when I first started my career, get into the industry, but then I, then I realized I wanted to and yeah. was able to force my way in, in this weird way that, that I didn't expect to work quite as well as it did. Yeah. And that, <laughs> that's kind of a fascinating thing that mirrors, the building industry itself, you kind of have a few different schools. You have the folks who really grew up as engineers Mm -hmm. and whether they wanted to work on radios or they wanted to work for, you know, whatever it is, whatever their aspirations were that, you know, they got those degrees. And then there's the other half, which sort of fell into it um, by accident, really, or Mm -hmm. just by tinkering, um, but have no, no background. uh, And, Though those are different paths to the same result, because of that, you see such a difference in how in and how people think about their their companies and their brands in general, mm-hmm. and how you know how they market everything. It kind of goes into everything. You see a lot of personality come through those different uh, variations. Yeah, yeah. So obviously, pedals are a big deal for reverb in yeah. many different ways, you know, from the initial launches that you guys sometimes help companies with, you know, the marketing support or just the constant reselling that goes on there. Like they're important to the company, but like I was, I was, I was asked this question the other day, like, do you think that the pedal market sells more than like more pedals than the guitar market? And I'm like, no, it can't. But then I got to thinking about the secondary market and I'm like, well, from a dollar perspective, maybe, but I guess I guess where I'm going with that is, is like, have pedals become as important as guitars <clears throat> as they are as the guitar itself? Do you guys think that or what do you what's your theory? Um, I think it varies quite a bit depending on the type. I think it's it's not I don't say dangerous because the stakes are so low, right. but it's it's <laughs> it's slippery to like think of guitar playing monolithically. Right. Mm-hmm. Like you have and I hate to be generational about these things, but I think there is a certain generational divide that exists here. Um, where like maybe the older school is really interested in amassing guitars. Not that you're not interested in amassing guitars, <laughs> as I can see by the room we're sitting in, um, or you can see in my house also. <laughs> but um, but you know, um, I think 
there's a younger class that, you know, thinks of pedals as a more standalone entity mm-hmm. and this is sort of the ends in and of itself. Whereas maybe the older school is sort of like pedals are maybe what they were conventionally thought of, which is enhancements and the mm-hmm. guitar and the amp is first. Um, something that's come up in a lot of interviews um, with Josh Scott and Philippe from uh, Caroline put it really, really well because he's got a very interesting business perspective on a lot of this stuff is um, 2008 and the recession being this huge turning point for pedals because at the time people were a little bit more cash strapped. They still want to have their hobby be exciting and change things up, but maybe they can't put out the you know high dollar amounts for a new amp or a new guitar, but they can buy a pedal. And change things up and have some fun. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's easier to hide that in a credit card statement, and uh, or you know, or they can resell it or whatever, and, and kind of and scratch the itch. So their sort of, theory yeah. is that the kind of like the recession era um, sort of ignited the pedal industry in a lot of ways, which happened to coincide with a lot of the pedal companies that we think of as kind of the bread and butter, and it's a loaded term, but like boutique, you know, pedals. Um, and by which I mean like, you know, Earthquake or JHS, mm-hmm. Wampler, Keeley. That's where all when they were kind of starting up was that same time frame. And ironically, the kind of global business contraction shifted buying habits to a lower price bracket and that really fueled pedals. I don't know if this is really answering your question, but I think it's interesting because like that mentality of like, I can do this thing that's cheaper and constantly evolving and buy this, try it for a little bit, flip it. Maybe I keep it, maybe I sell it, maybe I mod it. Um, and that excitement of the chase is sort of, I think, where um, where a lot of this comes from. And the other the other c- kind of completely bonkers aspect to this entire thing is the new notion um, of pedals being used by people who don't really play guitar or, oh, yeah. or don't consider themselves guitar players, but more so tinkers, noise makers, ambient artists, um, which are totally valid in their own right. But, you know... Uh, I think the modern pedal market, when you have companies like Alexander and, and Empress, and you know, making things that are in a hologram, you know, companies like this, they're they're feeding into a whole different type of musician, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes it, it, even though these effects can be so um, kind of like verbose and kind of big and knobby, it actually makes it more accessible to some people who don't who don't necessarily know how to make uh, traditional music, yeah, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. And that's a whole other interesting thing that we're exploring as well. <clears throat> that is interesting. I didn't really think about that, but, <clears throat> excuse me, the first time I remember really considering that guitar pedals would could be used for non-guitar things, you know, I'm sure I heard about some musician using them on vocals or something at some point, but the, the time that really kind of, like, kicked my brain is when I interviewed Brian from Small Sound Big Sound. Yeah. And he was like, he's like, well, I, I, don't, I was asking him some guitar stuff. And he's like, well, I don't really play guitar. I'm like, wait a minute. You build it like my, I don't know. I'd have to go listen to the the interview again to know how I responded. But I was like, what? Right. So he was the keyboardist in uh, Simple Z Guitar. Yeah, I and think I, still is. I think they actually just broke up. Oh, no, I didn't know that. Don't quote me on that because um, I don't want to speak out of school here. But I've actually interviewed them before. And okay. For the record, their records... For the record, their records sound excellent. Yes. And they have really cool sonic textures on them. And it's really, I, I, when I interviewed them, it's like he makes pedals that, um, uh, you know, the other members of the band can then add to their setups like on the fly. There's all like customizations going on. And he plays synths and approaches his pedals 
very much from that kind of perspective, which is it's really interesting. I mean, there's a lot of examples of that. I mean, we interviewed uh, Maris, as you have as well, the Maris guys for this uh, this film. And, um, you know, they they come at it from a very like democratic synth guitar, whatever the pedals are, the pedals, whatever you want to do with it is is fine. Um, that's one example. I mean, Strymon pedals and I think more and more brands also, but Strymon pedals, you know, automatically switch from instrument to line level to accommodate whatever, whatever you want to plug into them. Like there's an awareness just even on like a utilitarian level of that, uh, broadening of the pedal horizon that I think is happening, um, very widely. You just made something click in my brain when uh, we were doing the interview. Uh, I didn't mention Strymon at all. And that was really dumb. Oh, it's okay. We interviewed them. Um, we went to their, their works, their, uh, their facility in, uh, somewhere north of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it was, it was fascinating. We interviewed the three, three, you know, uh, the founders who were there. Um, and they have really interesting backgrounds. You know, I think one of them used to work for like Boeing. Interesting footnote to, um, to that, which has come up in a lot of interviews. A lot of people who have started pedal companies have worked at line six yes mm-hmm. it's it's a strange thing where line six is like this sort of i mean there's a lot of line six fan people i can tell you uh quite definitively that there's a lot of line six gear that gets sold on the internet mm-hmm. um but i think you don't typically think of line six when you think of like cool groundbreaking pedals but i mean who hasn't had a dl4 on their board right the dl4 is still being made in this exact same way it's been made for the last 18 years and it's like a revolutionary effect in so many ways, but I, I don't know. Maybe it doesn't get the street cred that you know a cool like an earthquake or like Chase Bliss pedal does. I think you also have to look at timeline. Um, you know, when when Line Six was really starting to pop, it was in that time where you started to see a lot of these folks who have, who went on to create other companies just beginning in the industry. I think Line Six, from what we've heard was very welcoming and open to these people. Obviously, these folks were talented enough to go and and end up doing their own thing. Um, So I think Line 6, you know, whether it was George Tripp's deciding to to go do stuff there or, you know, um, you know, or some of the other folks. Maris. Right. Yeah. yeah. Maris, yeah. You know. Sam Strymon, you know. Yeah, yeah, Strymon. yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And they they described Line 6 as being this very um, sort of like entrepreneurial atmosphere back in the day where like the people who were running the ship whose whose name escaped me unfortunately were like just really good at like mentoring the younger engineers so i think they kind of instilled in them the sense that like yeah you too can go make a product on your own and that's like um it's sort of like uh um like you know if you look at like the classic miles davis ensembles from like the 50s and stuff like everybody in that went on to start their own band it was sort of like (laughs) school you know Mm -hmm. like you know i don't know like john coltrane for example Mm -hmm. so um it's sort of this other kind of like a you know academy of like music engineering that exists existed yeah i mean and strymon's a a, you know i remember i talked to pete uh about this and and the maris the maris strymon connections like interesting and i don't Mm -hmm. know how many people actually know that those are related they're not related but they they have a lineage that yeah. is very similar, um, and I think I think a lot of that has to do with like they Line Six must have hired just like really smart engineers, you know. Mm-hmm. Clearly, mm-hmm. from what they've been able to do with, I mean, we we laugh at it, but the the old Line Six Spider Two, yeah, especially for its day, I mean, like that is an impressive piece of technology. Like yeah. 
it's funny to laugh at and making poke fun. I mean, at, but I, it's impressive. I, I, I don't, I, I would not even for a minute, you know, diminish the, uh, sort of influence and like, and like quality of the line six stuff out there. Um, I'll give you the best example. My dad plays guitar and my dad's not interested in amassing a pedal board. He's, he doesn't got time for that. It's like, you know, like I was saying, generationally, I don't think he connects like that. Mm-hmm. In fact, he's given me feedback on like reverb emails he gets where he's like, you know, I you open your emails just to see what you guys are doing. But like, I just don't know why there's all these different pedals out there. And it's like, <laughs> all right, cool, dad. No problem. Um, you know, you keep playing your 60 Strat. But um, but, you know, for his birthday, I got him a line six M9, which is, mm-hmm. you know, a pretty great, but relatively you know straightforward multi-effect yeah and he's totally happy he doesn't need that i think it's really and this is something we owe i mean like just to pull the curtain back on reverb marketing a little bit like we always have to be checking ourselves about which is like it's so easy to play to the gearheads the forum people and like the people who are on youtube and instagram obsessing over this stuff because that's like who we are mm-hmm. and it's really easy to like market to yourself <laughs> um <laughs> And, you know, that's that's authenticity. Like we're trying to do that to a certain degree, but it's really easy to lose sight of the fact that like um, the, this, the you know, a lot of people who play guitar out there don't need that much sophisticated gear. They need the bread and butter stuff. And like that's 100 percent valid and should be um, celebrated, you know, as much as the people with, you know, a closet full of pedals or whatever it is. Yeah, but at the same time, they've been marketed to for like 60 years, so it's our turn. Sure. Um, well, all of the above. It's not mutually exclusive. Uh, no, I mean, it, it. that is actually something that I struggle with as a gearhead and a guy who, you know, helps companies try to market this stuff. It's, I'm like, like my dad comes over and he's like, what is all of this? Kind of the same thing. He's a guitar player too, but, you know, it's not the same. He doesn't do the same thing that I do. It's just, it's just he just doesn't. He doesn't have the interest uh, or the time to get into it like I did. And um, it's it's interesting because I think I think because there are so many gearheads now and people involved at the consumer level, I think that that's just becoming less of a thing. And maybe I have my blinders on to it, but I think more and more people are like, yeah, pedals are cool. Like it's I don't hear that much straight into the amp anymore. It could be, you know, self-selecting because of the circles I run in, but I don't hear anybody say that with like a straight face, like pedal suck going straight into the amp. I haven't heard that seriously in quite some time. Yeah, I think I think that's definitely true. Um, Even our pal Joe Bonamassa owns Tube Screamers. Exactly. So, yeah. He has his own signature pedal. Look at right. that. A couple, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah, no, I think I think that's a that's a really good point. I mean, I will say and this is more of a reflection on my shortcomings than anything. I know a lot more about gear than my dad does. I mean, obviously, I do it for a living. My dad spends a lot more time looking at tabs and actually learning how to play guitar parts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I haven't done that for years. There's no reason for that now. No reason to get started. Um, no, that that makes and I think it does. It is a generational thing. There's no other way to put it. Like people, yeah, I don't know what where the cutoff is exactly, but you know, 45 and younger tend to maybe be more interested in effects. And I think that has entirely to do with the artists we came up listening yeah, to. Totally. Um, a lot of us came out of the, uh, you know, the warp Tour punk thing. And there was all kinds of crazy bands making all kinds of crazy noises in all kinds of different ways back then. And I think that left an impression on our generation that's bigger than maybe what some people realize. Yeah. The, uh, that era is kind of easy to poke fun at, like, oh, all these emo kids and blah, 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 wristband rock or whatever. But like all of those bands are now like coming back and doing 10, 15 year tours and they're selling out like 
I think that 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 people our age, I think that fueled a lot of that and that kind of more rebellious, you know, our rock stars were not rock stars as right. much as our parents rock stars were. Right. I mean, sense. I think my approach to it, I wasn't I mean, I went to work tour once or twice, but um, less less like that like strand of punk for me it was like you know nirvana pearl jam grunge mm-hmm. and that led me down the path to like husker du bugazi and dinosaur jr and dinosaur jr um is sort of this branch out into like this vast world of like the i would say maybe like the first generation of um pedal first rock music i guess mm-hmm. which is like obviously like shoegaze is sort of part of that and then everything that's followed and i'm not saying that my musical tastes or influence are particularly noteworthy but i feel like there's a lot of people in our generation who came up with that kind of like alt rock indie rock yeah and various things that have come out of punk that have been sort of expanded by virtue of a lot of noise mm-hmm. and how do you get a lot of noise you use a lot of pedals mm-hmm. yeah. um and jay you know um we're on a first name basis now oh, uh, just kidding. i love it um, um, I'll tell you. A, I'll tell you a funny, Send me his number. I'll tell you a funny uh, side story about Jay Masses if you okay, want. Go for it. Um, Jay Masses came to film a video with us once, and it was the same week. We do quizzes on Reverb sometime. Maybe mm-hmm. you've taken a couple. And one of the quizzes I made once was called um, "What Can We Guess What Kind of Guitar You Play?" The most like silly, you know, internet froth you can imagine, right? And the way it was calculated was I just added asked like you know. Uh, how many guitars do you have? Like, what kind of music do you play? I took this quiz. I right. remember. Yes. And, you know, obviously it's not going to get everybody right. It's not the point. It's a fun thing to do on a Sunday morning um, when we send out the email or whatever. And a lot of people commented and said, wow, I can't believe you got it right. Um, Jay Maskus, perhaps the most iconic jazz master player in the world, mm-hmm. was filming a video with us that week. And we were chatting about it afterwards. He was playing Riot Fest in Chicago that that night. And he was just like, yeah, man. I took this quiz on your site this week and it said I play Paul Reed Smith. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like a, I'm like a dinosaur junior diehard. And mm-hmm. like, I, I don't think I've ever been more embarrassed of anything that's ever happened. To me in my life. Like that was like a uh, heartbreak, you know, like, I, Hey, I'm not a software engineer. Okay. I, I, I I'm just trying my best over yeah. here. Jay. Kind of I, check that well, out. The thing is, if you think about it, he's a, you know, not, he's not, you know, I don't know how old he is, but he's like, and he probably answered on the quiz that he has 50 guitars or something. So the math of it is like, okay, if you have that many guitars and you're of like a certain age bracket, then like, um, okay, you maybe you like Paul Reed Smith. Like that's sort of how it was calculated. I'm trying to remember if it got me right or not. We'll have to take it again. I'll have to try it again. I feel like I remember being like, yeah, that's, that's pretty well, close. The thing like is I got that, a Jazzmaster or Les Paul or something. The thing about like, it is that right. when you have enough guitars, it's always going to be right, right? This is, this is a good point. So, you know, people who are most sensitive to this, it's like, you know, it kind of has a get out of jail free card. <laughs> well, yeah, it. but if you would have said Strat, I would have been like, hey, what's going on here? Because sure. there isn't yeah, one. Yeah, no Strat. <laughs> no Strat, yeah. And not because I like hate, hate them. They're just not one that's ever like. I, I mean, on the internet, I'll pretend to hate them, but I don't actually hate them. I think strats are back, man. I mean, I mm-hmm. I'm, I consider myself like a little bit more observer and referee than having a real horse in this race. But mm-hmm. like, you know, I go to like South by Southwest or wherever, and you go to see all like the hip up and coming bands, and like it's all white strats with maple necks and maple maple fretboards. You know, mm-hmm. um, uh, I mean, just just keep an eye out for it. Like that's that's definitely an aesthetic that's like uh, that's like very present right now. I think. Um, we just did a video with uh, Mac DeMarco, uh-huh. who I think people sometimes say, oh, he's very influential in, like, the youthful gear culture. And, oh, yeah. Big yeah. time. And, and I can totally see him. You know why he's playing that kind of strats? Because he was 
he's so hard trying to look like a dad yeah totally. <laughs> and so of course he's gonna play a white strap with or maybe it's the wayne's world thing white strap well yeah i mean yeah I mean, i'm not gonna say anything bad about a white strap i'll be yeah. honest i prefer a rosewood fretboard but sure yeah. if yeah. i was gonna get a strap it would be white or black yeah. probably yeah. white strap thanks albert hammond jr mm-hmm yep mm-hmm. that too Random, since you were telling a Jay story, I don't have a Jay story, but Jay is the reason that I have a cabinet with glass fronts for my pedals. I seen him in that, well, strange, weird way to connect it. The documentary Fuzz that came out, yeah. what, six years ago, maybe? Something uh, like yeah. that? I, um, I remember seeing Jay with this curio cabinet of big muffs behind him, and I was like, I need that. And so yeah. it's <laughs> when like- I got that cabinet... So I can put in shelves in it. He's even like influential Jay. on a furniture basis. Exactly. He's a force of nature. <laughs> you can't argue with, with the Jay Mascus influence. He's, oh, he's totally. amazing. Yeah. Great. So let's talk about reverb specifically a little bit. Sure. So you, since you guys have both been there since basically as, for all intents and purposes, day one. Yeah. So like it's reverb in the short time that it's been around has been a massive influence on the gear community. <clears throat> and when I first heard about it, I was like, so it's eBay for music gear. I'm like, okay, like, don't we already have eBay for though? And, and slowly over time, it, you guys have totally done a way better job than eBay for oh, at serving, at serving this, this community and making it easy. I mean, I just listed a drill on eBay the other day and I was like, they need to take some lessons from reverb. This is a pain, yeah. you know, like, so what do you think was like where did where did that come from like what was the process behind like sure because like i said the pitch wasn't selling me it yeah, was the execution well, that sold me i can tell you the, the origin story a little bit and kind of work from there i mean it's it's been said in other interviews and stuff but the, the short version is that david our founder who you know i think we would both count as a mentor of sort you know he's a, yeah. he's the ceo and founder of the company so he has a lot of influence um you know in the operations over the years and you know it's been a huge impact on our on my life anyway um he had a lot of success earlier in life in some other industries and got into the guitar business um, from a place of genuine passion and interest, you know. Um, and, you know, it's it's pretty it's 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 no secret. He bought uh, Chicago Music Exchange. Have you ever been to Chicago Music Exchange? No, unfortunately, it's a bucket list thing for me. Well, we'll have to come by sometime. It's a it's a really amazing store. Um, and, you know, he was really frustrated trying to sell guitars online um and ebay being just one example of where that frustration came from um i think it's safe to say Mm -hmm. so because he had some experience in the tech world building platforms um that was that was it was that simple i could just make another website for selling stuff and since he kind of had his network in the vintage guitar world early on vintage guitars were really where we first uh made an impact so in the early days this meant going to like the arlington guitar show down in texas one of the big you know vintage guitar shows really leveraging our networks and, you know, having a lot of phone calls with vintage guitar dealers uh, and of, of all sizes, whether they were shops like Chicago Music Exchange or, um, you know, individuals who just trafficked in guitars, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's sort of what was sort of got, got the ball rolling. But since day one, I mean, where I think we've had success and continue to have success is by being very um, attuned to that that community Originally, it was vintage guitars, soon became pedals, obviously. And then, you know, today we do a lot with synthesizers, microphones, trumpets. I mean, you name it. Um, if it makes music, I mean, people are buying and selling it on reverb. And where I think we've been, the reason that I think that's continued to expand is that most of the people who work at the company play music in some capacity or another. And that's not just the people like us who are 
making, you know, articles or videos and have to have a certain amount of knowledge. It means people who are writing code for our, you know, iOS app or people who are doing accounting. I mean, it's 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 everybody in the company has an appreciation of what it means to be a musician, musician with a budget trying to get the gear that they want and and kind of operating in that space. And I think that informs pretty much every decision that happens in the company. So that so what you're saying, the differentiation between the other platforms out there comes from a place of like, I really think just sort of authentic experience and being able to identify this is what I would want out of trying to figure out how much my guitar is worth or making a listing for my pedal or microphone or whatever it is. Oh, cool. I've always wished that we had something that would do this or something that would do that. And it's sort of um, that lived experience combined with being very attuned to listening to our customers and, and users of the site um, has been, I would say, the guiding principle of the of the company since it's existed. Mm-hmm. So, like, <clears throat> it seems like he it, a lot of it is like he kind of realized the same thing that everybody did. Like, there's no real seamless way, modern way, mm-hmm. you know, with these wonderful smartphones we're carrying around in our pockets all the time. Like, eBay's still clunky. You know, yeah. if that's just one example, just because I just have a recent experience with it. Sure. Um, and I haven't done a ton of selling on Reverb because I don't sell anything, but I have sold a couple like collabs and stuff. Yeah. I was like, well, let's put it on Reverb. Why not? And I'm like, wow, that was easy. You know, I think that's a lot of it. So I think that shows is what yeah. I'm getting at. It shows that like, oh, they made this simpler for us. Maybe it's because they know us musicians aren't that smart. I don't know. But yeah, uh, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah, that's that's really interesting. So did you did you see from an early stage? Did you think that it the not that it's over because it's in some ways just the beginning that the that the acquisition was kind of like a purpose? Like a uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is was Reverb going there from day one, or was that something that just kind of happened as a result of doing your job really well? Yeah, I mean, I don't. I think. I would say it wasn't really necessarily the goal, which, you know, I, I don't mean this critically by any stretch of the imagination, but a lot of tech companies, just reality of like the startup culture, start their companies with the intention of getting acquired. Yep. Really wasn't our playbook. I mean, we obviously it was always a possibility, um, but it was it was more like we our our goal is to make a company that's sustainable and a company that serves our clients as well as possible and um, offers a, a service that they can appreciate and rely on and, and they feel good about using. And, you know, if that leads to other opportunities or successes, that's sort of like this, the next step. With the acquisition that happened this year, um, you know, it's it's really great. Like there are just the reality situation is with tech companies, there's a lot of boring stuff that happens behind the scenes. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, and having a, a sort of bigger brother partner um, and Etsy that that has been able to provide us with a lot of excellent um, guidance and, and sort of advice um, because they've you know they're an older company there it's it's a different industry but they although there are a lot of music people on Etsy believe there it or are, not yeah, yeah. so um, they face similar challenges whether that means you know shipping labels or credit card processing or you know staffing or whatever it is just company just just challenges of scaling a business like this. That, you know, any company is going to face when it grows, having that kind of extra um, resource in our corner is is really, I think, where the appeal of this partnership and acquisition came from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think it's uh, I mean, you guys are making a movie. So obviously the the uh, direction as far as the media side of it isn't really going to change. It doesn't sound like in fact it may even get better. 
Yeah, uh, I think so. More resources, you know, things and, like that. And if you notice some of the things <clears throat> we've been doing recently, um, such as the uh, Why Does Motown Sound Like Motown piece, or, you know, these various documentaries that we've been doing, mm-hmm. you know, the goal is, is, is for us to highlight some extremely interesting things to us that we think um, are kind of big, interesting uh, educational and inspirational projects for really for all musicians. So I think the pedal movie um, definitely represents that as well. Yeah, I think I think Michael really hit it on the head. I mean, if you go to our YouTube channel and kind of scroll back, um, you'll see that we've been trying to focus on things that are like, um, I don't know. I, th- I think I think there comes a point where like your standard issue demo there's a lot of people doing that Mm -hmm. and maybe we have the ability or resources or um i don't know just kind of honestly just want internally to um branch out and the pedal movie is the the biggest example of that yeah um and it's amazing to work for a company where that's not questioned there's there's not an environment where you know there's a lot of um it's it's you know we're, we're we're in a position where we can function and still let our kind of creative vision um, and and kind of inspiration guide a lot of the decision making, and that's really not something that I would I take for granted. And it's really awesome. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I could see in in another entity like this getting totally meddled with. Right. Like, no, no, no. Don't say that. We have a relationship with this pedal company, so don't let that guy say something bad about Line Six. You know, you know, or whatever. It's you funny know. you mention that because this is this is sort of a joke, but also not really a joke. I wish there was more like. Bad mouthing. I mean, <laughs> that, that came out a little bit harsher than I meant it to. But like people in the pedal community are so cool and so friendly with each other. And they do it from such a place of like, you know, wonder and, and like enjoyment that like, you know, nobody, very few people have said anything bad about. I mean, the only stuff that come that comes up is bad is people get frustrated with like, you know, forum trolls. And mm-hmm. like, it's not like any. there's been I can't even think of a single example where somebody's been like. I won't, you know, I, you know, we watch out because this dude crossed me and made this pedal that was that like, it's, it's just like not really, a th- I mean, I'm sure there's, a, there's a lot of that, that that people don't want to talk about, but, um, there's, it's, it's very, it might not be that interesting a story. There's no conflict. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, I mean, there, there is conflict, but it's generally handled sort of like, how should I say this? I've been, you know, I've I've seen and experienced conflict that's happened in this industry. So totally. despite it being happy-go-lucky for the most part, I feel like in a weird way it gets resolved in almost internally, like yeah, a big corporation, totally. <laughs> like HR steps in, and it really just consists of two dudes calling each other and being like kissing and making up, right. basically, you know. Right. And, um, and the real conflict that is in the story, I mean, now that I pause to think about that statement, is obviously one of like the fact that this boutique industry making this relatively niche piece of technology can support hundreds of people, you know, thousands of people and have livelihoods like the conflict of like the pedal world versus like the realities of the economy and society and overcoming that that's the actual conflict to play yeah. here. <laughs> There's also, we also explore certain cultural and, and personal conflicts. Um, but you know, overall it is, it is a piece that I think is going to celebrate the history and the lineage almost like something that's a chronological um, that's a chronological look at how this entire thing went from a few builders, a few people making a couple things to thousands and thousands in this right. massively bolstered and supported industry. So that takes a lot of time. There's a lot of there's a lot of conflict, actually, that goes into that from, you know, 
EHX and MXR going under. To, oh, yeah. You know, there, it, it, there's plenty of examples within within the history of this. It spans, you know, half a, over half a century right. and hundreds of people. So, yeah, yeah, I just want to get Mike Matthews on this show so I can talk to him about the Russian mafia. That's what I want to do. <laughs> yeah. Also, I, I hate to even I hate to even describe it because I'm not going to get the details right. But I was researching this in our lead up to interviewing him. And I found this old magazine article interview with him where he talked about like the reason EHX went under in the early eighties had to do with like, like union corruption in New York city. I I remember reading the same thing. I don't know yeah, where I found it's, it. It's crazy. And then the reason he got into like Russia and the soft tech era was that he was importing military tubes from Soviet Russia to the U S and so the first person to do that. Mm-hmm. And that led to Russian manufacturing. I mean, the, the guy's like, I mean, he's, he's had such a, a legend. He's had an insane story. It's amazing. And for the rest of that story, watch have to the t- yeah, movie. Yeah, stay tuned. <laughs> All right. So b- before we get into the last couple of questions, let's 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 uh, plug this thing a little bit, even though we can't totally plug it. Roughly, when's this coming out, and how are you planning on putting it out? If you can say that, so it, it, it'll be out in twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. Um, still TBD. Just a lot of details to work out, but uh, you'll definitely know. That it's coming out when it does. There will be plenty of time. There will be a, a release date. So um, the goal is that, yeah, it'll be it'll be out to streaming, uh, you know, on your television, on your computer, on your phone, however you want to view it uh, sometime in 2020. And mm-hmm. that we can confidently say. All right. That sounds good. I like and, that. And uh, you, al- you can also follow us on Instagram at, at the pedal movie. There you go. Perfect. Perfect. All right. Since we're talking about pedals. And this is, seems very appropriate considering my hat. <clears throat> what do you guys think are the best boss pedals? The best boss pedals. Or your favorite boss pedal is actually how I usually phrase that. That's a really good question. Um, I would say the one that's had the biggest influence on my experience as a guitar player is the RV5 Reverb. Mm. It's not it's not like one that's in the Hall of Fame of like the go to boss pedals necessarily. But when I was first learning about pedals and I was in a noise rock band in college, my co-guitarist Mike was sort of like my my like uh, my like Yoda of my my Yoda, my tone Yoda. (laughs) Um, And he recommended that one flash forward to a few years ago. And I had another I had a spring based reverb pedal was sort of like your standard issue Bolton brick, I think it is, like the really kit-based mm-hmm. spring pedal. I just bought like a cheap one on reverb. And I was like, I really like the spring reverb as the always-on reverb, but I really like the crazy modulation setting on the RV5, um, tr- like maxed out mm-hmm. for like the freak-out shoegaze moments. Um, so I had this guy, Noise Kick Effects, he's a, he's a reverb seller based out of Baltimore, um, make a custom pedal for me which on one side was just the simple standard three knob bolton brick spring reverb on the other side was a rehoused rb5 cool so you and it has an effects loop in it so what that means obviously is that you can have the uh spring emulation on all the time the freak out shoegaze setting on the boss pedal on your second button and then everything else from delay overdrive whatever the, whatever else you want can go through the effects loop so it's all being reverberated through that one uh input sweet so that that's my very cool. roundabout way to say re- uh, the rv5 reverb is all right good answer uh i grew up a, a, a child of 80s and 90s new wave and Britpop, so uh it's pretty easy to say that um the i love the the uh the uh od2 i had that that was one of the first pedals i ever had 
And a lot of those folks use that. But also the Dimension C. Mm -hmm. I found a Dimension C 10 years ago at a garage sale for $5. Nice. I sold it on Reverb <laughs> for considerably more. You should also mention, <laughs> you also have that multi-effect. Oh, Currently. the MS3. So another plug for you. Michael and I are in a country band together. What? In Chicago. What? Called That's the Cattle funny. Catchers. Um, because we don't spend enough time together at work and making this movie, we also needed to be in a band together. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't, we've only played one show, so it's not that exciting. <laughs> <laughs> um, we did practice last night. But um, if you're ever in Chicago, just look up every venue in the city and see if the Cattle Catchers happen to be playing. Exactly. <laughs> But for that, you use, what is it, the MS3? The MS3, which is this great product that's sort of, I never thought I'd be a multi-effect person, but how they made this is just extremely convenient when you're doing fly dates or when you're running around and you only need a couple of things. In a country band, I need a slapback, I need a compressor, and I need a tremolo. That's just for me. And so, you know, I can stuff that in a gig bag run off with it i can also hook up other things to it it's a great little product it's I a cool it. little thing because it has effects loops in it so it's like this multi-effect that is built to accommodate outboard like analog pedals as part yeah, of it. yeah yeah it's kind of like it's like a i heard i heard matt knight from boss he's he has a podcast you guys might know guitar nerds um, oh yeah sure. <clears throat> he uh he was talking about because people the thing that i was so excited about the ms3 when it came out i was like perfect that's what i need because i was considering the es8 and es5 but then I found out you couldn't move the effects block mm. of the MS3 around like you could on the ES series. Uh, you can change the order of any loop on the ES series without unplugging things, which I was like, oh, that's going to be uh, so cool. Right. Can't do that on the MS3. But I, the reason why is because of the addition of that digital effect, that has to remain where it is. So they didn't allow that. It just doesn't work if, if they move that around. So, mm. right. Um, so that's I thought that was interesting, but that sounds like a really cool little pedal. It is. I mean, I and I have my massive pedal board and everything like that, but it's it's just really got to maintain the credibility oh. here. <laughs> well, oh, yeah. yeah. What's your favorite boss pedal? My favorite boss pedal. It's really it changes a lot, but mm, it's probably going to be the BF two right now. Oh. I really like the flanger. I have an old made in Japan one that I'm like, man, this thing just sounds good no matter where I put it. It have sounds you, cool. Have you been to Minneapolis recently? I've never been to Minneapolis. It's a great town. Highly recommend it. I was there about a year ago and I went to Paisley Park, which has been converted into like the Prince Museum. Okay. At two different parts of the Paisley Park tour, like his main studio, he had three studios in the building. And then he also has this giant soundstage. It's it's kind of surreal. You go into this like building and like you go out to the back and there's like a airplane hangar size soundstage. Sweet. But at both the soundstage and one of his studios, they have two of Prince's pedal boards. And not surprisingly... 100% boss. Oh, yeah, I believe that. I, I definitely believe that. I think, in fact, you know what? I'm pretty sure I've seen pictures of it before. Yeah. And he's been brought up before as like the quote unquote anti boutique. Right. Like, well, Prince only used boss pedals. I'm like, well, you know what? Boss pedals are good. I don't know when, when did we get into this thing that boss pedals aren't sure. good? Right. You know? I, don't I mean, know. we this came up when we were talking to Josh Scott. It's like, like the pedal industry exists because of boss pedals. I mean, you mentioned yep. it earlier too. It's 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 not even really a controversial take. Nope. You know, it's like there's a lot of cool stuff out there, but like you know, def deference where it's due. You know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right, guys. Here's the final question for you. What kind of pizza do you like? Ooh, we we had some pizza last night. My cat kept on trying to eat it because he's a <laughs> real real 
gluttonous little beggar of a cat. Um, he's like Garfield, but you know, not orange. Um, <laughs> I, well, we're both Chicago people. Mm-hmm. So we'll go ahead and say very boldly deep dish is not pizza. No, it is not. Well, okay. Wow. People, this is not what I was this expecting. Is, this is right? the, this is the inside line. Deep dish is a tourist thing. You know, it's like going, I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of examples in every town. Like, would you go to voodoo donuts? Out in a, I mean, like, uh, probably not anymore. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, I only eat deep dish when I have relatives or something from out of town who really want to order it. But it's, it's just, it's just after a certain point, it's just like, why would you do that to yourself? <laughs> it's like if you're going to eat lasagna, yeah. eat lasagna. There's another kind of Chicago pizza that people don't talk as much about because not quite as fun, but it, it is definitely as delicious, which is the more thin style Chicago pizza. We're starting to get more like New York style pizza shops in Chicago that are making the kind of like bigger, thinner crust style mm-hmm. to varying degrees of uh, of success, I would say. But I mean, to me, the, 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 the pizza average in Chicago is it pales in comparison to anywhere on the, in the upper East coast. Oh, interesting. That being said, if you must have deep dish pizza, go to Pequod's. Pequod's is good. That is the only place you should go eat at Pequod's. Yeah. They're not paying me to say that. Okay. <laughs> and um, spinach is the best topping for filling for deep dish. If you're a meat eater, sausage and spinach is the classic. Mm, okay. But I- again, I would say if you're visiting Chicago, go to Pequod's. Don't go to Giordano's or Jean. I mean, you can. They're all the same. But um, And if you're going to just want to have the experience of deep dish, do the spinach or sausage and spinach if you eat meat. All right. That didn't answer my question. Though. Oh, what kind of pizza do we like? Yeah, I like, mushroom, do I like mushroom like? pizza. Okay, like thin crust. Thin crust. There's a place in Chicago called Dante's, which is like an East Coast style kind of place. Mm-hmm. Bigger, and they. What I love, my favorite pizza you get from there is that they have um, both portobellas and non-portobello mushrooms. Mm. It doesn't say what the second type of mushroom is. It just says mushroom. So if you get the pizza that has both type of mushrooms on it, it's like this umami bomb, and I love that. My Italian grandmother would probably throw a shoe at me, but I'm going to honestly be controversial and say I love Hawaiian pizza. Nah. I said it. Somebody was going to say it. I knew somebody was going to say <laughs> well, it. Well, there's also that pedal, the yeah. Carolina I love Carolina Hawaiian pizza. I love and he Hawaiian said he pizza. named it Hawaiian pizza because you either love it or you hate it. I feel like he did it just to irritate me. <laughs> I, I love Hawaiian pizza. We should get some Hawaiian pizza Let's later. do that. We had pizza last I mean, night. I don't know why anyone would do that to themselves, but I guess, you know, to each their own. Sure. No, I, I just, I'm not a pineapple fan, just in general. So Yeah. But I know, if you like it, you like it. It's all that matters. Just like tone, my friend. Exactly. Yeah. Just like tone. <laughs> all right. Would you guys have anything you'd like to leave the people with before we, uh, before we take off here? Um, I would just say, you know, if you've listened this far and um, you're somebody who cares about music gear, um, if you've used reverb to buy or sell at any point over the last seven years or however long, like, thank you. We really, really appreciate it. Yeah. And, um, Reverb doesn't exist without musicians and music makers and music inclined people trying to get cool gear and do cool stuff. So really genuinely uh, thank you to whoever might be listening. All right. Sounds good. Also, you should use ToneMob.com slash Reverb if you're going to buy anything off of Reverb. There's your commercial. By all means. (laughs) By all means. Thank you guys for that, by the way. All right. Let's wrap this thing up. For Dan and Michael, this is Blake. And as always, folks, good luck and good tone. All right, there you have it. There's another one in the can. 
So make sure you follow The Pedal Movie on Instagram and stay tuned to all of Reverb's socials for all the details concerning this thing. I'm so excited. It's going to be a really, really good time. And yeah, let's see. Do I have anything else pressing you need to know about? Nothing too crazy. I think we should probably just insert the standard. Please share this episode with a friend, family, coworker, anybody you think that would like this kind of content. If if you feel like this brightens your day and you know somebody that, well, this will also help out, please share it with them. It would make my day because, like I said before, I quite literally get paid by the download these days. So every little bit helps. This helps. The fact that you're listening to this right now is literally helping me directly and very, very, like, a lot. I don't know what I was going to say there, but very a lot. Substantially, that's the word I was looking for. You're substantially helping me just by listening to this right now. And also a big shout out to all of the Patreon subscribers. The Patreon subscribers also help a lot and they get extra content for it because that's just how it rolls over there. So for as little as five bucks a month, you can get extra audio content coming right to your ears. And sometimes that is more conversations like this. Sometimes it's conversation with me and my good friend, Justin Porter in the shred shed. Sometimes it's demos. Sometimes it's sneaky stuff that no one sees coming. You never know what it is, but it's always going to be some sort of guitar-related audio content. It's all over there on patreon.com slash tonemob for anybody that can support over there. So thank you very much. I'll talk to you next week. Goodbye. One last thing before we totally sign off here. I just want to remind you that if you do any shopping at Stringjoy, that's Stringjoy Guitar Strings made in Nashville, that will help me out as well. As I've said for years, I'm heavily involved in that company, and I really do think they're making the best products on the market. So if you would like to try custom strings, go to ToneMob.com Stringjoy and check them out today. I seriously, seriously, seriously love what the team down there is doing. I help them out with all kinds of things, and by you supporting them, you are also supporting me as well. And hey, you need some strings So why not get some custom strings just for your guitar and playing style? Again, the link for that is ToneMob.com slash StringJoy, and that will take you right to their website, and you can do all your shopping through there, and that will help everyone involved out. So thank you very much. Talk to you next time. We are brought to you by the wonderful folks at Gun Street Wiring Shop. Yes, Gun Street Wiring Shop. I've talked about them before. I used to say based out of Bend, Oregon, but guess what? Sean moved to my neck of the woods. Sean's in Portland. Sean is awesome and has helped me with a bunch of stuff lately. And if you have wiring needs for your guitar, he can help you too. If you want to get weird with it, he can get weird. If you just need to spruce things up a little bit, there's your guy. He takes all the guesswork out of doing your guitar wiring, and he makes it simple, and his customer service is top-notch, and I can't say enough good things about Gunstreet as a company. I really respect Sean and what he's all about, and the product is top-notch. I've got three different guitars that now have Gun Street harnesses in them, and I could not be happier. So go to GunStreetWiringShop.com and check them out.